calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hello everyone, welcome to today's bonus episode, which is going to be jam-packed full of content that we aren't usually able to cram into our other episodes with our guests and our Books with Hooks segments. So today we're answering all your questions that you've sent through to us regarding contracts, querying etiquette, editorial questions, and more. Cece and Carly, thank you for taking additional time out so that we can provide answers to our listeners. I love nothing more than to continue to hear my own voice. And I'm just glad everybody wants to hear it too. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Yeah. Alrighty. So let's begin with contracts because this seems to be something that comes up quite often. And unlike Cece, the rest of us are not lawyers and our eyes glaze over when we read the fine print. So here we have some questions that we would like you to answer. What we'll do is Carly will begin with you and then we'll alternate in terms of answers. So question one, how should a writer build a list of agents to query beyond just looking at what they're looking for? How do you determine that this agent is a reputable agent? There are many layers to that question, but I think I will tackle all of it as much as I can. So reputable agents sell books to large publishers who are only able to accept agented submissions because any publisher that accepts unagented submissions, you know, again, anybody, anybody can pitch them. So agents build their list and their reputation and their brand by accessing editors and accessing publishers that authors aren't able to do themselves. And that's kind of how we, we pay for ourselves. And reputable means they have a good track record. They are competent. They are able to get you great deals, negotiate for you, and have the author's best interests in mind. Reputable agents have been in the business a while, you know, haven't just hung out their shingle. And if they are joining a newer agency that just is hanging a shingle, then the person who started the agency should also have been in the business a while. So having some sort of mentorship if they're new is really important. And in terms of building a list of people to Query. I always suggest keeping your dream agents in the first round. Other people have different opinions about this, but I feel like you don't want any regrets if you get an offer in your first round and your dream agent's not in that round. So it is very important not to kind of do like a soft pitch round. It really is important to have everything top notch, ready to go, including your top agents. One thing I will remind people is that anybody at the kind of VP level and above has a really full list. So you are fine to pitch that agent, but just, you know, if they're open to queries, but just 
just remember that anybody that's kind of mentoring under that agent probably has relatively the same taste as them and has more space on their list. And a lot of times, you know, agents who have full lists will pass things on to their their colleagues if they think they're great. So definitely keep your eyes open for associate agents who are acquiring under senior agents who also have the taste that you like. So those are some tips for you. In terms of reputable agents, is there a website? Is there some kind of resource where people can Google an agent to see if they've been complaints or people speaking out against it? Because, I mean, obviously there'll always be disgruntled people and disgruntled people speak louder than those who are satisfied. But certainly in terms of red flags, where might they look for that kind of thing? Victoria Strauss has a website called Absolute Right, W-R-I-T-E. And that's a great resource. It's quite vetted. Victoria doesn't usually post things on there unless it's corroborated by multiple sources. You can also go to Query Tracker and in the comments of Query Tracker, people will comment on agents. Obviously, there's going to be some disgruntled people there, kind of like Goodreads for agents. So take it with a grain of salt. But yeah, if you're looking for absolute red flags, go to Victoria Strauss's absolute right, right, W-R-I-T-E. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly. Question two, what red flags should a writer be looking for when researching agents? If an agent also owns a small publishing company or owns their own editing service, should you go with them? Unfortunately, not all agents have good intentions. Cece? Okay, good question. I think in terms of red flags, in addition to the things Carly covered, I would also just recommend Googling the agent. I know it seems very basic, but sometimes going back to basics can have its benefits. And I would just do a deep research in these agents and see what's being said about them. Try to separate the comments that are, you know, things like, oh, they took a long time to answer an email for to, you know, from the other comments. Uh, try to see how many comments are out there. I think that if someone owns their own editing service or does their own editing on the side, that's totally fine as long as they're not providing those services for their clients. There should be a total separation from the editing you offer to the agenting work you offer. That's the most important thing. With a publishing company, I think that becomes a little trickier because Again, are you going to be pitching to your own publishing company? Because you can't do that. That's a conflict of interest. So if that's if this is a publishing company that you have because you publish, I don't know, self-help books, right? Like, and that's the thing you publish, but you rep- don't represent self-help books, then that's not a problem because that's not a conflict. The thing to keep in mind, the concept is, will there ever be a situation where this agent is engaging in a conflict of interest? Meaning, will this agent be charging you for edits? If so, that's a huge red flag. Will this agent be pitching to their own publishing company? If so, that's a huge red flag. There are a lot of moving parts and many variables, but it is about keeping that concept in mind. There shouldn't be ever any conflict of interest and no money should ever flow from the client to the agent. The agent gets paid on commission. So when the agent sells your work, preferably to a large publisher, the publisher will pay the author and the agent takes a commission of that. In terms of them saying a publishing company, something I've seen is that a lot of self-publishing businesses kind of cloak themselves as traditional publishers. So it's anyone who submits to the self-publishing company will get published, which is essentially self-publishing. How do people know how to see the difference between what is an indie publisher and what is essentially a self-publishing company that's just providing a platform? The big one for that is who is paying who. There are indie publishers that don't offer advances, but they would offer royalties and therefore the author themselves wouldn't be paying to publish their own book. They might be net zero for a bit um, until the royalties come in, but they won't be actually paying to print and produce their own book. Whereas any vanity presses, some hybrid presses, self-publishers, you know, those are 
some words to, to encompass that. If they are asking you for money to print your own book, edit your own book, design, you know, design your own book, distribute your own book, pay for retail space or warehouse space, anytime the author is fronting the cost, that would be an example of a red flag. There are people that do this and you know have fine experiences, but there are more people that have negative experience than have positive experiences. Therefore, you want to make sure you understand exactly what you're getting into and you don't ha- end up with a garage full of books that you don't know how to sell or distribute. Absolutely. So Carly, when reviewing the contract with an agent, what should a writer be wary of? We'll get to it shortly in terms of what they should specifically look out for in terms of good things, but what should they be wary of? And uh, what about the statement clause and an audit clause, making sure the agency is distributing your money properly? Some red flags would be things like not having an easy out. You know, this is a mutually beneficial relationship and you should be able to get out of this agreement easily. The agent on record for any books that are sold, but if you want to get out of that relationship, it, it should be too complicated. The agency will receive all money and statements on the author's behalf because they are the agency on record. Therefore, you want the agent, this is one of the reasons you hire them, you want them to be reviewing and vetting all of your royalty statements and checking that against the money coming in. So you just, again, want to make sure you understand what the flow of money looks like. Some clients or agents might want the payment split from the publisher, but generally our agency likes to have everything come into the agency so we can check the two against each other, right? Because we want to vet the statement carefully, make sure the exact right amount of money is coming in. So in terms of a statement clause and audit clause, Carly, so you as agents will be auditing the statements that you get from publishers. Is that correct? That is correct. The point of having an agent is that they will carefully audit, meaning they will carefully check the royalty statement that comes in from the publisher to make sure that the appropriate amount of money is coming in, that the royalty statements are correct. You'd be surprised every royalty season how many statements come back that have errors in them. So that's part of an agent's job is making sure everything's correct and we disperse the money onto you. Wonderful. So next question, what are elements of an agent writer contract and a publisher writer contract that a debut author is typically surprised by or needs to learn about before an offer comes in? Carly? There's not too much that they need to know in advance unless they want to carefully read the Authors Guild. They do have a sample contract that you can find on their website just for, you know, general information. The top line thing that, you know, constitute a deal or deal memo, kind of the original offer that comes in are things like the territory. So is it world rights, North American rights, et cetera? What is the royalty rates? Those are things that are, you know, very clear up front. Uh, What's the format is, you know, generally decided beforehand, whether it's paperback or hardcover. But again, the contract allows for for either way. There's also going to be things like what are the percentages of foreign rights that are shared between, you know, the author and the publisher. So there are some very common kind of upfront things. There's also obviously the advance, the financial stuff, the payout. Um, Are you getting paid in halves, thirds, fourths? You know, what does that look like? There's not a whole lot you can do in advance for research because publishing is such a situational business and every deal is different. If you want to be prepared, check out the Writers Guild website for their sample contract. But otherwise, just choose an agent that you really trust and can go through this with you really carefully. Something that I was surprised by was how advances get split up into three or four payments and how those payments, like one payment can follow a year and a half or two years even after you've originally signed that contract. But that's something that your agent will discuss with you. And that's pretty standard in the industry. We tend to think advances are going to be this win 
mindful that we get all at once, which is certainly not the case. In my experience, debut authors are sometimes surprised, especially when they've just signed with an agent, that the title of their work isn't on the contract. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that question. Like, but you didn't name the the title of my my novel or the title of my memoir. And I, you know, it's about explaining that it's usually a relationship, you know, that doesn't cover one work. Even if it is per work, it won't have the title specifically of your work, probably. And that's not that's not a problem. That's not something you have to worry about, especially since titles change. Another thing that always comes up is co-agents. Usually there's some reference to co-agents in the agreement. And all the time I keep hearing this, people go, um, but I don't want another agent to work on my project. I, I signed with you. And they go, no, you're still going to be working with me. The co-agent is just typically someone who we work with in another territory. So, you know, if we sell your work in, I don't know, Japan, we typically have a co-agent on the ground in Japan or even for film, right? Like we have a co-agent who, who handles film and TV rights with us, like we're working with them. So that's, you know, questions that typically come up in the agent client contract when I'm reviewing it with, with, with my creators. And another thing that usually comes up on the publisher side, in addition to the advances that you mentioned, people are always surprised. They always say, but I thought it was an advance. I'm supposed to get it in advance of, and I'm like, well, yes, but just one part or sometimes two, it depends. Another thing that comes up a lot is like the list of rights. Usually there will be an appendix listing all the rights that are going to the publishers. And that's something that your agent has negotiated. So it's also something to ask, ask them, you know, how come they're getting these rights or how come they're not getting these rights? Like, what's the strategy if you want to know? If you don't want to know, if you're just like one of those people who's like, I don't want to be stressed out about this, that's okay too. In terms of costs that an agent can work into their contract in terms of reasonable costs that the agency will spend up front and then can recoup, I feel like that's open to a lot of interpretation. So what are reasonable costs that agents kind of do incur up front that they can then take from their commission later and what might be red flag costs? The clauses began when in order to go on submission with a manuscript, agents literally had to go to either, you know, have a huge printer in their office or they have to go somewhere to get the book printed. And they would print the manuscript, you know, maybe bind it. They would obviously have to mail it all out. And so that kind of clause began um, as something where the cost to actually go on submission with something was was huge, right? It was, it was a big investment. And that's why a lot of agencies were in New York because, you know, they could either hand deliver some manuscripts or they could obviously, you know, mail them as well, but, but keep it in New York. And so now everything is really virtual and digital. The costs really are just the foreign publishers who still want that physical book mailed to them instead of a, a PDF. So there's that sort of thing. That's really it. Like from our agency, that's really it now is just any mailing of books, shipping of books or copies of books for foreign rights. Again, so I think it's changed a lot. That used to be something that was more common. And now because we're in a virtual age, even mailing contracts, like we don't, we do all like DocuSign these days, right? So even mailing contracts doesn't really happen. So that cost has gone down dramatically. Um, so I can't, anything other than mailing books and contracts, you know, that would be up for discussion for sure. Good thing to check is to see if there's a cap. Like if, you know, in order to spend anything over, I don't know, $300, we'll have to check with you or something like that. That's usually indicative of, of good faith. Perfect. Right. Last contract question. Do you recommend authors incorporate themselves via LLC once they have a publishing contract or copyrighted intellectual property? This is something that new writers are terrified of and I can't understand it. They're all terrified that their work is going to get stolen and that by sharing their work with anyone, they open themselves up to this, this work being stolen. So that's another thing. Carly? So absolutely. 
absolutely no need to copyright your work. Just by having your manuscript on your computer, having a Word document with timestamps in a court of law, again, not a lawyer, but that would say that this manuscript belongs to you, right? Just you be knowing you're the one with the timestamp on Word, that's enough. And the other thing is that there is no copyright in ideas, but there are copyright in words. So you don't need to worry about someone quote unquote stealing your idea because there is no copyright ideas. There's also no copyright titles. And in terms of the LLC, there are way too many variables to consider to answer that. What jurisdiction are you in? What's your tax situation? It's just, it's just too many variables. I would recommend talking to a really great accountant and a really great lawyer and a trusted friend who understands the writing business from the author's side as well. Getting referrals, these, these things are really important. It's not, it's definitely not one of those questions where you can answer in absolute terms. Yeah. And go back and listen to our episode with Courtney Mom. She wrote a great book called Before and After the Book Deal. And she kind of discussed the realization she had with that and the conversation she had with her tax person and all of the implications surrounding that. So yeah, that would definitely change from person to person. All right, let's move on to careers in publishing. We have a question here. To get into agenting or publishing, do you need a degree in a similar field? So Cece, I'm going to direct this one at you because you've a recovering lawyer and you move industries. Could you tell people how to go about this? Yeah, I always love that question. There's no need to go back to school, although you can, and I did. I was in my mid-30s. I didn't really know how to get started in, in, in aging tank. I was new to the country. So to me, it made sense to go back to school, to make those contacts, to build that network. And I think it was a really great decision on my part. If that's what you want to do, there are some great postgraduate publishing programs, masters in publishing programs in some, certain countries that you could attend to. And I'm thinking that many of them are probably now virtual. So that's also a great opportunity. So that's definitely an option, but it is by no means a requirement, right? Like to be a lawyer, you have to go to law school. There's actually an exception to that, but we won't get into that. Um, to be an engineer, you typically have to go to, to, to engineering school, um, but you don't need to go to agenting school to become an agent. There are people who move from other professions. For example, you could have been a bookseller all your life and then you just move. You could be in the, on the publisher side, you could be an editor and then you could you know, become an agent. So there are many ways to go about it. And the most important thing, I'm a newer agent. So the most important thing is to find an agency where you will get mentorship. That is by far the most important thing to consider at the beginning of your career, especially. A great opportunity could also be internships. So to you know, take a look at Publishers Marketplace, their, their job listings, take a look at Twitter, go to agencies' websites and take a look at careers and stuff and make sure that they're hiring or, or check if, to see if they're hiring for interns. And even interning at an agency, you kind of get a feel for what the agent's work is like. There's a lot of assumptions about what our day-to-day -day is like, and a lot of it is probably incorrect. So just getting a feel for it can help. Yeah, I think these are the, I think these are the main ways. Great. There was a question about what an agent's day is like, but honestly, there are a ton of articles and interviews online with agents. Just Google the average day in a literary agent's life and a whole bunch of interviews will come up uh, and you'll be able to, to get an answer for that based on that. Right. Let's move on to the etiquette in terms of submissions. So Eric Smith recently tweeted that he thinks there's no problem with nudging agents when they when you're just at the query stage, even if they have a no answer means no policy. What do you think of this? You know what? This is such a situational question. Love Eric dearly. Eric, if you're listening, we love you to bits and we love every 
everything you do for authors. Love you so much. This is a very situational question because some agents really feel strongly that you shouldn't nudge. I feel like this question leads a lot into a larger conversation about the power structures between authors and agents and how that power structure is imbalanced a little bit. You know, you as the author are trying to hire an agent. Like you want to pay them, right? But the agent has the kind of the power in this relationship because at this moment, because they have the ability to choose you as a client. And so the power structure gets a little imbalanced at this stage. And so, you know, that's a topic for another time. But if the agent is open to nudges, again, they might say on their website, if you don't hear from us in three months, you know, if we have a partial for three months, nudge us. My rule is generally, I say this on social media, I don't think it's on our website, but if I've had your partial or full for three to six months, send me a nudge. Totally fine. Tell me if you, you know, presenting at a conference, tell me if you've won a little award, tell me if you're, you know, tell me what you're up to if you want to give me a nudge, right? The best way to nudge is to be in a position to share great information. So just doing a like, hey, how's it going, you know, isn't as strong as, oh, you know, just letting you know I had a couple other requests from other agents, you know, just just giving you a heads up on that or I'm presenting at Thriller Fest next month um, on this topic, just letting you know in case you're there, something like that, right? Those are better ways to nudge. Again, if you have an offer, that's a great way, the best way to nudge. So yeah, I would say, you know, be respectful about it. You might not just recognize also you might not hear back about the nudge. Like I have nudges kind of sitting in my inbox, which are fine, but like I get a hundred emails a day minimum. So I can't like even, I I receive the nudge. I see the nudge and it is a nudge because I am nudged, but I can't reply to the nudges always. So, you know, again, the power balances, um, I think make authors feel like they can't nudge, but you know, there's no harm if you're doing it respectfully within a respectful amount of time. Yeah, definitely respectfully. When a nudge becomes like a child sitting in the back of the car on the way to vacation, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Then that is problematic. You also don't want to become a pest. So there's that. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Right. This one for Cece. When you have a good request rate but aren't getting offers of representation, how can you politely implore an agent to tell you when and why they stopped reading your submission so you know whether to keep querying or to make changes? So again, I think that this question is a great question and I empathize with writers so much. The problem is that an agent won't have time to explain what about your submission didn't resonate with them. But beyond time, even if you could magically give them two hours to do it. I'm not sure how responsible it is for an agent who isn't going to take on a project to share their opinion because so much of publishing is subjective. There are books that get published every day, best-selling books that I never would have asked to see or, or offered on because it's not my taste. So if I were editing and critiquing those books, they never would have existed. So I do think that the thing to keep in mind when finding an agent is that it's all about the fit. You want someone who sees your vision and shares your vision. That's really, really important. I do understand and I feel so much the need for, but I just want to know what's wrong with my manuscript. So there's two ways to think about this. One, there's nothing wrong with your manuscript necessarily. It might not just be for that agent. And two, if there's something about your craft skills as a writer that you need to improve, then I don't think you should be going to agents. There are great editors out there who offer these services. There are critique groups. There's writing community on Twitter. There are really qualified, intelligent, eager, enthusiastic people out there who can be a second pair of eyes on your manuscript and can say, you know what? I think this is what you need to work on. I think you need to improve your dialogue or character development or whatever it is. It's really easy to think, well, this agent has the magic solution. This agent has the formula that I need to adopt to get my book on bookshelves, but that's not how it works. If we had that formula, we would all be gazillionaires. Yeah. And, you know, besides the many excellent uh, developmental editors that we've interviewed on the podcast, besides that, I've had a ton of people who, since I sorted them into their writing groups, have now resubmitted to the books with hook segment because they thought their work was super polished, but after one or two sessions with their writing groups have already started to find issues in their work and are already polishing and revising and resubmitting. So once again, I cannot overemphasize writing groups and that's free. You know, we're not saying you need to go out and spend a fortune on a developmental editor, but certainly other writers are well equipped to tell you where you might be going wrong. So, so there's that as well. Then one last etiquette question can you ever have two books by the same author out on submission at the same time? Carly? Generally, no. That's the safest answer because an agent manages an author's career, right? And so we are thinking big picture. Sometimes agents have prolific clients that are maybe working in adult nonfiction and children's picture book and YA, you know, like they're dabbling in a couple things. But as the agent, we kind of need to have this eagle-eyed view of making sure that their projects aren't going to compete with each other. 
on a, you know, submission basis. So I wouldn't pitch like two women's fiction novels at the same time, because you know, to, to women's fiction editors, because like, it just shows a bit of market confusion. Like as the agent, it's my job to know, like, what is the leading project, right? And so I have to be able to consult on that. Um, yeah, so th- those are some important things to think about. And there are times when I do have a client on submission, maybe in Kidlet and adults, again, we're working in two different spaces. But publishers also have non-compete clauses in their agreements. So authors sign non-compete clauses. And part of my job as an agent, when I have a prolific client, is to make sure that that non-compete compete clause is narrowed really carefully. Sometimes publishers will have some like, you can't do a competing project for two or three years. And then I have to say like, hey, we're living in 2021. You're not paying my author enough to not work on anything for three years. So we're going to limit that a little bit. Or we narrow it down to, oh, we can't have a competing nonfiction project within this amount of time, right? And so, but a lot of authors are branded in certain care, in certain kind of spaces, right? And so by saying you can't have a competing project, we also in today's day and age need to define what that project is. Is it a podcast? Is it a course? Is it a book, right? So again, really, really need a skilled agent to figure out what exactly is going on with that non-compete clause and have an, having an agent that can envision your career as a whole over the next three, four, five years. Awesome. Thanks, Colleen. All right. So we are opening it up now to some broader questions. Cece, what are the factors that make you not request the full manuscript after reading the first five to 10 pages? Number one reason is the writing is there on a line level. That's always the number one reason. Number two, I think, so a few things, I'm not going to say the rest of them in order. Not enough tension, not enough authority in the voice. The conflict might not be clear for me. I might not be connecting with the character too, right? And connecting doesn't mean liking the character. I think we've covered this in, in our podcast, but it's it's about feeling like I'm inside their head. The thing to keep in mind for me, for my taste is this, what makes a book different from a movie? And the number one thing isn't like the visual versus the, the, the reading, not for me. The number one thing is that I'm inside someone's head in a book. In a movie, even if you have voiceover, you don't have voiceover all the time. That would be a horrible movie. So it, the, the privilege, the great privilege of books, the reason why I read is that I'm inside someone's mind. There is no other way in the world that I'm ever inside someone's mind. It's only when I'm reading and it's phenomenal and it's fantastic and I love it. So if I'm not feeling that voiciness, if I'm not feeling that inner life interspersed with external life, if there isn't a good balance of scene, that's an, also another big one. I sometimes we're just not in scene. It's like, it reads like a journal. Yeah, it's a lot of things. But again, number one is the writing. I always say the best advice that I could possibly give to aspiring writers is to study the craft of writing. You're trying to be professional opera singers. The fact that you can sing in the shower doesn't necessarily mean that you're ready to sing in the opera, right? So that's that's the level of craft you have to develop. You're learning to play, play an instrument. You're learning to, to sing at an opera level. It's, it's a huge challenge, but it's also an amazing thing. As a creative writing instructor, that's one of the biggest problems that I see time and again is too much telling, not enough showing, not dramatizing us, not placing us in scene. Uh, And that's actually why I've come up with the course that I'm offering on the 2nd of June specifically to tackle that particular problem that we've seen coming through again and again and again in those opening pages. For those of you who write unlikable characters or perhaps characters with some problems, I want you to listen out for an interview that I've got coming up with May Cobb, who wrote The Hunting Wives. This novel is full of really unlikable characters, people who do really shitty things. And this book has been hugely, hugely successful. I'm interviewing May and that'll be a great podcast episode for you to listen out for in terms of how she was able to pitch this and how they were able to sell it despite all of these characters that nobody likes. Carly, what kind of revisions do agents ask authors to work 
work on before they want to go out on submission to publishers? This really depends on the book, of course, and how competitive I think the situation was to get the client as well. The more polished a manuscript is, the more ready it is to go on submission, the more agents that are probably going to be competing for the project. And so it'll probably just be more polished and be ready to go. Earlier on in my career, when I was signing projects that were a bit less competitive, but I saw a lot of promise in, you know, I'd be doing a lot of editing. And to this day, I still edit quite a bit. I probably edit less than I used to because I do have a lot more clients that are more established, have some books under their belt and and just kind of have that groundwork in terms of self-editing. And so if I'm signing somebody up from the slush pile, I usually say and hope that we're going to do about one to three rounds of back and forth, you know, one to three rounds of editing. If I think a project is going to take more than three rounds of going back and forth, I probably won't sign it up because I just don't have the, the physical bandwidth in terms of space in my career and my day to be able to take projects on that probably have that much work. Might offer them an R&R. I think we probably have a question about an R&R coming up. So, you know, we can talk about that, but th- there are other ways that I might communicate to that author. Keep me in mind for your next project, that things like that. But if something's going to take more than three rounds of back and forth, it'll be up to me. So let's move on to that R&R question. The question was, what makes an agent offer an R&R instead of a flat out offer of representation? So could you just, for the listeners who don't know what an R&R is, if you can get into that and just explain why you might offer that instead of representation? Yeah. So an R&R stands for revise and resubmit. Agents throw around terms like this and acronyms, thinking everybody always knows the, the terms, obviously. But yeah, it stands for revise and resubmit. And so there are many instances in my career that I have offered R&Rs, meaning I send them a very detailed edit letter. Usually what I do is I will reach out to them and say, I really liked this, but for XYZ reason, I can't sign it up at this time. Would you be open to an R&R? And if they say yes, they might say no, you know, I've got some other agents that are sniffing around and I'm probably going to be okay. Or if they say yes, most say yes. And I'll say, okay, I'll send you over my edit letter. And then my edit letter might be seven pages long. You know, it might be like, I see so much promise in this. It's just not ready. If I send somebody a seven page edit letter and they can turn around a manuscript and send back a draft, again, it could be two, three months. Like, doesn't have to be tomorrow. Like, I expect you're going to work on this. And they can pull it around and wow me. To me, like, that is kind of training wheels to be a client in a way. I don't sign up every R&R course. I don't want to kind of set that precedent. But if, if I'm really wowed by that work, like, I know that they can do it. I know we see eye to eye. You know, it, it just shows so much of kind of agent-client interaction in a positive way when it really works. Some of my more successful client interactions have been R&Rs because when there's a power structure between the authors that are submitting and the agents, there's just not a lot of time for us to get to know each other, right? It's based on a manuscript. Sometimes we read a manuscript overnight and have to email the next day and say, we want to offer on this, especially in a competitive situation like Hitman. Like there is no interaction. Like some agents are just literally picking up the phone once they've read that submission. That's, you know, again, a quick turnaround, 24 hours and offering on a business relationship for the next foreseeable years into the future, right? Like sometimes we don't actually get to know people very well before we offer. So doing an R&R is a wonderful way to actually build a foundation for a solid professional relationship, email communication, learning each other's styles. You know, I just, I can't say enough good things about R&Rs. So I would really just encourage people to take R&Rs very seriously because agents take them seriously. I would never write in a seven page edit letter for something unless I was quite excited by it. So I would really encourage everybody to to feel good if you get it. Awesome. Cece, this one's for you. How quickly do agents make offers of representation? Oh gosh, it really depends. It could be like in a really competitive situation, Carly just mentioned PitMad, it could be in less than 24 hours since receiving your manuscript. It could be in actually two hours. <laughs> it could be 
months after you've sent in a full. It really does depend on so many variables, including whether it's a inherently competitive environment, but also how much workload the agent has at that time. So you might just get lucky and the agent just might, you know, maybe you'll send in your full and the agent might not have too much stuff on their queue and they might read it right away and love it and set up a call with you and sign you. So it really does depend. And I would encourage writers not to expect a certain timeline. It it varies. Let's take some questions now about comps in terms of query letters. So if I have a comp that is a classic and one that is more recent, but has a big following, is that okay? If my story is strong and I have self-edited it and had another set of eyes look at it, is that acceptable? Carly? Absolutely. Comps are such a, a thing that we love to talk about. I love to talk about it. I could do a whole episode on comps, but it's something where it's it's a lot of moving puzzle pieces. And sometimes it's not just the weight of one comp, it's this comp meet that comp. You know, it's X meets Y, it's this meets that. It's for fans of this in conversation with XYZ book, right? And so there's a lot of ways to layer in what a comp means. And so it's okay to have a larger comp. I usually say if it's a book to film or book to TV show, that's a blockbuster hit. That's one where you're just like, is it really a comp? You know, maybe for something that is really unique, something like you, like, Carolyn Kepnes, where it's like, it is kind of a blockbuster hit, obviously, it's a New York Times bestseller, but it's a it's a great hook if you have a serial killer male protagonist, you know what I mean? Like, so there are ways where blockbuster hits can still be great comp, but you're going to want to do a X meets Y. It's Joe from you meets this, right? And so you want to be able to use those puzzle pieces and you can comp TV shows, podcasts, films. Like for me, I'm okay with any sort of comp because you're trying to place it in pop culture. We know that today's reader is going to be listening to podcasts, watching Netflix, listening to audiobooks, you know, just so immersed in technology and the way we consume media. So I'm okay with that because I work at actual part of the industry where comps can be many things because we're competing for readers' attention within all of these other spaces. So as I said, I can go on and on about comps. <laughs> okay. And then just in terms of, I'll answer this one. If my story is strong and I've self-edited and had another set of eyes look at it, is that acceptable? My advice to you is as writers, we lose all objectivity with regards to how strong our work is. Truly, once you've been immersed in something over an extended period of time, you have zero objectivity. And obviously the fact that you think it's fine to send out on submission means you think it's strong. But looking at some of the submissions that agents get, I would say, you know, 80% of the submissions that they receive are not super strong. And yet those people all think their writing is strong. So I would stop trusting your own judgment at that particular particular point. Self-editing is great. You obviously have to edit your own work, but once again, it's hard for us to kill our darlings. We will look at a page that we spend three weeks writing, and so we want to keep it because it shows what a brilliant writer we are. But if it doesn't do anything for plot or characterization, it needs to go. And you need someone who's a bit more cutthroat, who's able to tell you that. And one other set of eyes, you know, unless that other set of eyes is a editor or developmental editor, I don't feel like that enough. So once again, polish it as much as you can, get as many eyes on it as you possibly can. That's my advice to you. Another question on comp, should a comp be the same genre? For example, if I'm querying a traditional mystery and want to use a suspense novel for a comp because it matches tone and themes, is that okay? I would say in that situation, it's probably totally fine because suspense and mystery do have enough of an overlap that it's not a strange thing. I've also seen it happen, like sometimes 
anytime someone is pitching a memoir and their comps are for novels. And that also usually makes a lot of sense because a good memoir reads like a novel. So I wouldn't get too bogged down by the genre. Um, Make sure that it's conveying the tone. And like Carly said, make sure that it's placing your work within the context of pop culture. It's also okay, actually, I think it's even advisable to add a line and explain how that particular comp applies to your work. So if I once got a great query letter that said, my protagonist is like Ivy in the book White Ivy by Susie Yang. So I loved that because I have tweeted about that book. I love that protagonist. I think she's a great character. So it's something to to think about, to, to explaining that is okay, is what I'm saying. Wonderful. Another comp question. If a querying writer comps a book the agent represents, is this seen as good homework or do you recommend different comps? My line of thinking is gravitating towards agents who rep similarly, but I'm curious about the perception from that side. Carly? It very easily teeters on sucking up. So it has to be like the absolute best comp. Another thing that happens sometimes, and again, I'm not saying this person is guilty of this, but writers will get a publisher's marketplace subscription and they'll see that I've sold a book and then they'll use a recently sold book as a comp and the book hasn't even come out yet. And I'm like, okay, you clearly haven't read this book. It's not even on that alley. Like that kind of stuff increasingly makes us icky. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, you probably shouldn't use a client comp unless it's perfect. The other reason you might not want to use a client comp is that I already rep that client. So if you're saying, oh, I'm exactly like so-and-so, it's like, well, I have a so-and-so. So I don't necessarily need a so-and-so, you know what I mean? So that's something where you just have to be a little bit careful. So if you want to do your homework and it's absolutely perfect, that's fine. If you were going to use that comp anyway, then pitch that agent, but just be really, really careful. Great. We're going to take three more questions. Basic question. When the submission requirement says one page synopsis, does that mean in font size 12 and double spacing? Does the same apply to a query letter too? It certainly applies to a manuscript. That I can tell you. If someone says they want to see 50 pages of your manuscript, they don't mean in 6.5 font and single line space. In terms of the synopsis in the query letter, Cece? It doesn't have to mean specifically 12 font and specifically um, double spacing, but I would suggest for the synopsis that readability really matters. It's better to send a one and a half page synopsis with good readability, even if the website says one page, than it is to send, okay, I'll make it fit into one page, but I'm going to use a really tiny font and the spacing is going to be awful. The first thing I do when I open up a synopsis, to be honest, and and the readability is awful, is I I edit it. And if you send me a PDF, I can't do that. So there's that too. I think it's really, really important to keep in mind that we read so many pages every day and we love it because it's the best job in the world, but it also means that our eyes are tired. So whether consciously or not, readability affects our decision. It has to because we're human. So yeah, I would say when in doubt, 1.5 spacing, 12 point font, easy, easy font, like times or something like that. And, And to give advice in terms of manuscript, formatting because I see this with my students as well they will write walls of paragraphs and there is the psychological thing in which we access information so when we have a page that's got quite a bit of white space in between the words that's more psychologically accessible to us so make your paragraphs shorter rather than longer don't forget to indent your paragraphs etc if you're not sure how manuscript should be formatted google it look at examples you want your manuscript to look like a properly formatted manuscript script because this shows that you know what you're doing. And that includes dialogue formatting. Remember, different dialogue, different characters speaking go on their own paragraphs. You don't bunch a whole bunch of people speaking together, etc. And these are things that are so easy to look 
up as well. Last two questions. Carly, this one's for you. My manuscripts could be considered literary fiction and or YA. What keeps tripping me up is how to suggest that it can be either or both without sounding as though I don't know what kind of novel I wrote. Should I tailor the query as one or the other based on what agents' wish lists are? Ooh, that's a real toughie. I think it, it's very hard to answer this question without seeing the material because the voice will really dictate who it's for. Obviously, there are literary novels with a YA protect, like age protagonist, but really you have to think about the audience. Who is it for, right? A YA book is for a YA reader. A literary adult novel is for an adult audience. So I think you really just need to evaluate and have some beta readers, you know, and figure out who exactly is this before because it's really a market question, not a narrator question. I would very firmly put yourself in one camp and I would actually avoid the word crossover because who determines that? The market determines crossover. Nobody, uh, no, uh, no one else could determine crossover. Even publishers with the best intentions could try to market something as a crossover. It doesn't mean it's going to crossover. The word crossover to me is always like, sounds a little bit too confident. <laughs> we would love if everybody, if every book crosses over, but it doesn't. So I think just firmly in one hand. Awesome. Okay. Last question for today. Cece, do you want to know a bit about other manuscripts an author has completed or has in progress in addition to the one they're querying? Does it help to get a sense of how prolific, eager, hardworking they are? In terms of the query letter, I would say that if you're working on something else now, you can add a line about that in the last paragraph, um, the paragraph that's a little bit about yourself. I always like to know, but I wouldn't say like, I have seven other manuscripts just because it it could also indicate, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but it could indicate a level of anxiety that might not be so desirable. Like you, you could be talking about someone who literally writes up a first draft and sends it out and then starts a, another project. Again, not necessarily the case, but that impression might come across that way. So I would add one line about one other project that you're working on now and that's it. And then when you talk to the agent, when the agent does offer up, then absolutely share everything you have, everything that's in your drawer, everything that you still want to write. That is absolutely the time to talk about that. But for the query letter, there's really no need. I would also say that agents want to work with authors for the duration of their careers. So we want authors who are very eager and hardworking. That is absolutely something that we that we're looking for. It does come across though, not necessarily like the number of things you have is great, but there's other ways to show that. So, so don't worry. No one is going to not sign you because you didn't mention that you have, that you're working on another project. That doesn't happen. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. That's all we have time for, for today. For those of you who submitted questions, we still have a ton of them to get to, and we will try and get to them as soon as we can in terms of additional content. So certainly look out for that. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.